not in my notes, but I have a thought here for you before we begin. It just struck me there. Don't you wish you were loved a little better? Let's be honest, don't you wish you were loved a little better? Some moment to moment, time by time. Don't you like, can I just remind you of what I've just been struck by this morning? The scripture says, there is no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. You have had someone lay down their life for you. There's no greater love. It's the core of the passage, for the love of Christ controls us. And so even before I begin, I think, just good to meditate on that just for a second. The title of my message this morning is Life-Changing Perspective. How do you get it? I can remember it um, pretty clearly, this, this uh, moment in the hallway. I'm 55 now. It must have been 15 years ago. I think I started having no trouble reading my phone. And then I'm holding it here. <laughs> and <laughs> thank you, Rick. And here. And it was Debbie Ford who just, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I do, said to me, One day your arm won't be long enough. <laughs> and then I graduated. Right? Diminishing eyesight is this idea of um, losing perspective, right? It's funny how the eye works. Everything works, but the lens gets warped. And so the light gets refracted before or after the retina. Everything works, but the light hits at the wrong spot, and we see wrongly. I contrast that with opportunities that you've had in your life, too, to see more than you've ever seen before. Have you ever been to a scenic vista? A year and a half ago, Lori and I and my three youngest children, this is the vista from Mount Carmel in Israel, one of the highest points in Israel. Israel is a country about the size of New Jersey, and in the north, Mount Hermon sits 7,700 uh, uh, 7, feet above sea level, mile and a half above sea level. Within the space of New Jersey, down to the south, you get to the Dead Sea where you are 1,412 feet below sea level, okay? I, I'm surprised I didn't feel like I was running downhill, right? Can you feel? I mean, it, it, it's, we go there and we're looking over and you get this perspective. Oh, Capernaum. Oh, Dan. Oh, the Sea of Galilee. You have an experience like that in your life where you're like, oh, I found perspective. I found understanding. I found the big picture. And certainly... Uh, you know, the idea of stargazing. Um, this is not from our trip to Haleakala in Hawaii on my sabbatical. It's just a stock image. But you've gone, surely, to a place with less ambient light, a place where you can see the stars, a place where you see that there are lots more than you can see in Indianapolis. And it's beautiful. Well, what's the point? Well, it's great to see clearly, isn't it? It's more helpful. Light is better than darkness. Clarity is better than the alternative. Well, how do you get a clear perspective on spiritual matters? How do you see the most important things? Well, the text is going to tell us this morning that being in Christ gives us the, the best viewpoint. And my call for you today, before I forget, begin, and my call to myself is this. 
as I've been reading 2 Corinthians and meditating on it, I've just become convinced that we are all too comfortable in this life right now. The ideas and language that Paul has used should be a little shocking and jarring to us. Do you feel naked? <laughs> Do you feel a little naked? Being in this life and not in the next? Not yet clothed with what you should be? That's a pretty strong image, isn't it? The idea of nakedness? We live in a tent, not a home. <laughs> It's transient. We're not where we should be. Today we're going to see that we are called ambassadors. That means we represent a different country. It pulls on the idea that Paul spoke of to the Philippians when he spoke of our citizenship not being American, but being in heaven. But we don't feel this in life. 2 Corinthians said that we groan. We should, we should groan. <laughs> I know we all groan sometimes. We should long to be out of the body, Paul said last week. That what is mortal might be swallowed up by immortality. We have this treasure, this gospel ministry in, what was the metaphor? Jars of clay. Breakable, perishable. Listen to the words of Jesus selected from John chapter 14 through 16. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, somewhere else. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to get you. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But we're trying to live in peace. And at the end of chapter 16, the last verse that Jesus in his dis discourse to the disciples there before he went to the cross, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Do you feel it? Here and there, us and them. I think we're a little too comfortable so how do we get this perspective of valuing the next life more than this one? And I think our passage this morning gives us four points. Now, they're not four points to Paul, I will tell you. <laughs> Paul is on a riff. <laughs> he has one main point this morning. It's the idea of being reconciled to God. And so we don't want to miss that. But for the sake of talking about it, I've divided it for four thoughts to help us gain perspective to be in Christ properly. Verses 11 through 15, I'll suggest to you that you need to allow godly motives to control you. You need to allow godly motives to control you. This would be the first step in finding life-changing perspective. What's a motive? A motive is that which motivates you. No, you can't use the word to define the word. That's right. Uh, we might ask the question, what do you want? You might ask the question, why do we do what we do? What does Paul say for us? Now that I've given you this thought, I want to, to reread these verses for you. This is not rocket science. You're going to see it now. And I want you to look for those words while I'm reading that deal with motivation and the heart and inside, not outside. Let's read God's word. 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if, this is a strange verse. Paul is basically saying, I don't really care what you guys think. Uh, if, if we're out of our minds, if you judge us as out of our minds, we're out of our minds for God. <laughs> and if you see us as doing things properly, you just need to know we're doing it for you. I'll come back to that in a minute, but it's a, it's a strange verse in the English. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Why do you do what you do? But for him who for their sake died and was raised. There seems to be a little progression here. The first thing about motives, he says, is the first thing I'd point out to you is it seems that there's an initial fear of judgment. He says, because we know the fear of the Lord. Well, what's he referring to? Well, Pastor Brian did a great job last week, and I'm not going to drive deeply back into it, but verse 10 spoke about the fact that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds that are done in our body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, so this is a continuing thought, but because we're aware of this judgment, we persuade others. Our fear of him now, fear of the Lord is uh, something that has been taught on again and again and again. Those who are in Christ have no near need of, a, of a, a ghastly fear of the Lord. But it is wrong for us not to have a, uh, an awe and a reverential respect and an understanding that this is the God of heaven that the book of Hebrews calls a consuming fire. This is the God who Moses fell down in front of. This is the God... Mount Sinai, that the Israelites said, no more, right? But that's not how we live. Does it move? Does it transition? What else becomes aware in our motives? How do our motives grow? How do you allow godly motives to control you? Well, in the second half of this verse, of verse 11, not not only do we know the fear of the Lord, but he says this interesting thought. He begins to think about God's omniscience and our conscience, but do you think about this? When you think about, have you ever tortured yourself like this? I'm trying to do what's right, but I, 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 you know, am I doing it for the right reasons? All of us have battled this, right? Motives, trying to be purely motivated. And it becomes really, really hard. It becomes really, really um, uncomfortable sometimes when we think about the idea of God's omniscience. That God knows everything. Have you ever been praying? I I can distinctly remember a time in my life when uh, I was not trusting the Lord. And I knew I wasn't trusting the Lord. It had to do with a job transition, polite way of saying getting fired, and um, Lori being pregnant with with our eighth child. (laughs) So I read F7, and I'm just like, how long ago was this, 2008? And so I'm just like stressed out. I know I shouldn't be stressed out. I know I should trust the Lord, but I can't hide from the Lord. Why? God is omniscient. I distinctly remember dealing with that in one particular way while I was praying. I think I finally, just in frustration, said, 
not one of my finest moments. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? <laughs> like I was the disciple in the boat, drowning. And then I'll tell you, I'm just self-aware and, and dramatic enough and an actor and everything that I immediately went like this. I knew it was wrong to say that to the Lord. But it was also wrong not to admit that this was how I was feeling. The Lord lays us open. He knows what is in our hearts. His Spirit helps us. An awareness of God's omniscience helps purify our motives, helps move us from immature motives and selfish motives to godly motives. So this idea of God's omniscience. Remember John? One of the early verses in John we were preaching through that. How long ago is that? Is that like four years now? I don't know. That little verse that was really important, John chapter 2, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he didn't need anyone to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. So striking. Well, these things begin to build together, and uh, he gets to verse 12, and he says, this is, this is interesting, because Paul has been passive-aggressive defending himself to the Corinthians this whole time, right? And the later we get in the book, it's going to happen again. His relationship with the Corinthian believers was somewhat contentious. But that's not his point here. This is what he says in verse 12. It's a quick aside. But he says, I'm not doing this again. Do you understand? This is not what I'm doing. I'm not commending myself to you again. Okay? But I'm giving you a chance now with these words. I'm not, I'm not saying we're not like the super apostles. I'm not on that riff right now. You understand? I'm doing something different. But what I am doing is giving you cause to boast about us. Why? So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what is in the heart. Again, about motives. Again, about motives. There's a diminishing of human opinions. Paul doesn't care as much about what everybody else thinks. You ever been motivated by what everybody else thinks? Everybody is. In Dr. Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small, he takes us on a little journey from how teenagers call it peer pressure. And sometimes we as adults call it people-pleasing. And when it gets really bad, they'll put a label on it and call it codependency. But at its core, it's what the Bible calls the fear of man. And it calls it a trap and a snare. Hence the title of the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in this first idea of finding godly motives, I'm, I'm almost taking you through a progression of how you get from immature motives to godly motives one of the most fundamentally immature motives you'll see in a moment is this idea of fear. Just reactionary, not strong. Not aware of what anyone else thinks, not even aware of what God thinks, his omniscience. Slaves to the opinions of others. And Paul basically says, like I said before in verse 13, hey, if you think we're... He was accused of being crazy all the time. The Corinthians like said all kinds of disparaging things about him, and he's like throws it back in their face and says, hey, if we're beside ourselves, this is the cultural, um, the cultural expression for out of our mind. If we are insane, if you think we're insane, 
You get this, don't you? Have you ever lived it? Like people find out I give money to the church and they're like, are you insane? People find out I get out of bed early on Sunday morning and go to church and they're like, are you crazy? Right? Oh, you wouldn't, you'd, people find out I don't just live to indulge myself as though my God were my stomach, Philippians 3. I try to live for other people. And the common response of people is, you're crazy. <laughs> this is something we can identify with. It's not some esoteric thing. If, Paul says, if I'm out of my mind, it's for God. Yeah. And if you think we're in our right mind, it's for you. But I don't care what you think. I'm moving past what you think, you'll see, because verse 14 says this. And now we begin to get to the more productive side of this. For the love of Christ controls us. Whose love? Okay, this is interpretive. You, might, you could read that either way. It's very clear what he means, but you could read it either way. Is it our love for Christ or Christ's love for us? Well, I will tell you in the context and in all of Paul's writings, it's very, very clear. It's Christ's love for us. We love him because he first loved us. I'm not suggesting that you don't love Christ, but I'm saying the thing, the motive that will grab hold of your heart and warm your soul and bring you strength in godly motives is the knowledge of God's love for you, which is the exact opposite of fear. What causes a mother to stand between a lion and her four-year-old child. Love. Remove the four-year-old child, and what does the mother feel? Fear. <laughs> I mean, I'll go to the zoo, but there are bars, right? <laughs> I, I understand that. First John 4.18 says there, you might, I might, you might think about it this way. If I were to say to you, what's the opposite of fear? You would probably say bravery or courage. You would say something that would seem in an American context the opposite of fear. But John wrote to us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Fear has an internal focus. It focuses on itself. It focuses on what you might lose. It focuses on what might happen to you. Love focuses on others and on giving and sharing and defending. Fear has an internal focus. Love has an external focus. The biblical opposite the put-off, put-on, if you will, of fear is love. And the highest form of that is knowledge of what I began with right here at the beginning. You and I have had someone love us more deeply than anyone could ever love another person. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you have had a man lay his... He, he has taken the bullet... <laughs> He has taken the sentence. Do you feel it? The love of Christ controls us, Paul says. This is beyond us. John Calvin wrote about it this way. Everyone who truly considers and ponders the wonderful love that Christ has shown us in his death cannot but be bound to him by the tightest chain so as to devote himself to his service. This story, this kind of thought weaves its way into all of our uh, uh, popular stories. Jar Jar Binks in the Star Wars owes a life debt to Qui-Gon Jinn because he saved his life. This is one example of all 
And where does it end up? What is this love of Christ for us? For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded, we've learned something. I know that nearly all of you know this, but meditating on it and thinking about it deeply enriches our faith that one died for all, therefore all died. Why? Again, motives. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And through that example, it is incumbent upon us not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives. And that is what verse 15 says, that there is a submission of your will and your wants for what he wants. Do you understand that? Motives. And then what happens is, in this whole idea of motives, ultimately, the love of Christ so, what's the word? Controls you, compels you, constrains you. These are other translations from the NASB, the NIV. You may see those words. You feel those words? Control, compel, constrain, hems you in. It so controls you that your desires become his desires. Your motives become his motives. This is the evolution of life. This is part of the spiritual process. How do you gain life-changing perspective? You embrace this idea of, uh, of godly motives. But not just that. And now, like I said, this is, this is the progression, right? So I've divided, and let me give you a second one. Time is fleeting fast. You, second thought and finding perspective is you must disregard your earthly opinions and values. You've got to put them aside. You have to disregard your earthly opinions, your earthly values. Look what he says. From now on, therefore, because of that, just next step, oh, well, if that's true, then this must be true. We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does it mean to disregard your earthly opinions and values in this text? Well, it's very obvious. We must not see people simply in terms of their humanity. I can't look at you and say, oh. I can tell by the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the job you have, your level of education, the way you speak. I can't make value judgments about that. I cannot only see people simply in their humanity. Paul is going to say this again in 2 Corinthians 10. We'll get to that in a few months. He says this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They don't know what they're doing. If you actually draw value and, and prestige and honor or feel 
weak and diminished and insignificant. Because of your comparisons with one another, Paul says, you don't know what you're doing. You're living life wrong. You're doing it wrong. You must disregard your earthly opinions, earthly values. Instead, how do you see people? I don't have time to go into all of that today, but I can tell you this. This is the most fundamental way that you should perceive people around you. Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, some people are in and some people are out. Some people are in darkness, some people are in light. And this is the first and most fundamental way that you should view other people. Do they know Christ? Are they in Christ? This is the first way you should see the clerk at Speedway, the counter girl at Kroger, the person on the other end of the phone, your tax accountant. This is, this is the first and most fundamental way you should see your boss, your coworkers, your employees, your friends, your acquaintances, your children, your spouse. Are they in Christ? We must not see people simply in their humanity. Paul even says, I used to think of Jesus this way. Do you see that? Even though we once even regarded Christ according to the flesh. Do you know what Paul's talking about? Before Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, a persecutor of the church. He regarded Jesus as the false prophet, human, dead. He gives a little personal testimony there. I used to diminish Jesus. I don't anymore. It's become the all-consuming thing in my life. Incidentally, many people, how they regard Jesus has a whole lot to do with their worldview. I'd encourage you to take a few moments and familiarize yourself with the apologetics of C.S. Lewis. Many people just want to say Jesus was a prophet or a good man or a good teacher. But I will tell you that uh, apart from him being God, that's not a possibility. And you, many of you know this expression a, a good teacher is not going to tell people that he's gonna that he's god and he can forgive sins he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's the lord but the idea of just being a good teacher you can't how you regard christ is so important and now we come to this famous verse we must not see people simply in their humanity but we must learn to see people spiritually if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Corinthians sometimes held Paul in contempt, didn't they? Because of his external appearance being unimpressive. Do you remember that? And Paul writes to them, and he says, you shouldn't judge me or any Christian based on worldly external standards. You have, you have to look at the heart. The inside, the conscience. And what's true of every human heart, one or the other, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. The new creation is a beautiful expression of a great theological truth. Isaiah 43, 9 would have been alluded to here. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Don't you see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
Isaiah uh, 65 also uh, says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah prophesies that a time is coming. Israel will forget about the hardships of God's judgment. They, they won't think about captivity. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth that's going to be so full of glory and so full of goodness that all the past troubles will no longer come to mind. Do you believe that? you believe that when God makes something new, it'll be pretty good? I think so. And yet, this prophecy, while it is all focused on the future, when Paul talks about this new creation, he says that the new creation is already entered into the experience of anyone who is in Christ. If you know Christ... I'm not diminishing the fact that there is laid up for you an inheritance in the future that will not spoil or fade away. That is true. It is also true that you already have the Holy Spirit working within you, remaking your heart, re-educating your mind, and transforming you into the image of Christ. You no longer scoff at the things of God. Why? Because the old has passed away. New things are come. Yes, your outer man may be decaying and passing away, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. The inward reality that the Holy Spirit has already taken place and has already taken residence in you takes what was spiritually dead and makes it spiritually alive today. And Paul says in this idea of disregarding human values that this is true of every Christian we should not look at other people and their external characteristics and think that we can judge what they really are. Judgments, Paul says, based on external characteristics that are viewed only with the eye, he says you don't know what you're doing. It's essentially worthless. You have to train yourself to see spiritually, to see what is in the heart. One day, Isaiah 11, the glory of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Oh, that'd be great. Until then, that new creation is already breaking into your heart as the gospel, through the gospel. It's small and inconspicuous in some ways, and it is always true. We must not judge that way. Kent Hughes says, this is why we no longer regard Christ or his people according to the flesh. We regard them with gospel regard. Believers are new creations in Christ. We've been brought forth in the exodus out of the bondage of the old man. God is our God. We are his people. We know him. We are forgiven. This is your biography. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed out of existence and the eternally new has broken into your heart. The law being written on your heart. You are delivered. It's beautiful. One of the greatest verses in all of the New Testament. Third thought. How do we gain this perspective? We must humbly accept God's reconciliation. We move to the gospel call here. And it's so good for us. And it's very interesting to me. Um, as an aside, when we're done here, we will be going to a combined ABF class, Adult Bible Fellowship, where we're studying sharing the gospel, right? Do you know that in God's providence what the text is for chapter 1? 
It's 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. <laughs> so I had to really work hard not to be too redundant here, but um, this whole idea of the gospel now just becomes full on display. We must humbly accept God's reconciliation. Verse 18, all glory to God, Paul says, the source, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. With three minutes to go, I finally get to the word that I said was the big point of the whole passage, so I'm not doing great here. Dane Ortland wrote in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Reconciliation is an important way to understand Christian salvation. Whereas for justification, the sphere is the courtroom. For sanctification, the sphere is the temple. For redemption, the sphere is the slave market. And for adoption, the sphere is the family. The sphere of reconciliation is friendship. In reconciliation, believers move from being God's enemies to being his restored friends. How did God do this? Through Christ. God did not casually overlook our, trans, our treasonous rebellion against him. He sent his own son to pay the penalty for his people's sins and wipe away all that stood between us and restored fellowship with God. This is the pathway to becoming a new creation, to accept God's ministry of reconciliation. And that's verse uh, 18, and it's almost like Paul's like, I want to give him a little more. I, I think of verse 19 as like, if you were looking at verse 18 on your computer and you clicked on it and said, I want to see more, you'd get verse 19. Okay? He says, that is, let me be clear, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. God is the source of reconciliation. We are reconciled by and through Christ. And this idea here that he transitions to thirdly is that we must seek the reconciliation of others. I wish more of you would come to community Bible reading. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> but we read 2 Corinthians this last week for those who came. And the reason it's great to sit and just read it and go home, it took us 38 minutes to read the whole book, the ones who came. I was reminded of this verse. I wouldn't have it here for you if I hadn't. Chapter 8. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest... He is coming to you of his own accord. And with him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I don't even know his name. <laughs> it says he's famous and they don't name him. I guess because in that culture, everyone knew his name. But I, I, this is the message of reconciliation. And there's a brother here named who is just famous for his preaching of the gospel. Which transitions us to our last thought. How do you gain this kind of life-changing perspective? You have to live as an ambassador for the king. An ambassador for the king. Verses 20 and 21. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I found, uh, Brian, give me that little pledge thing. I just was tooling around online in my study this week. Some church came up with some player, Christian organization. I'm not saying I sanction all of this, but isn't it interesting? It, it crystallizes in your brain the idea of being an ambassador, doesn't it? What's it mean to be an ambassador? Well, it's a political appointment, isn't it? It's a serious thing. Oh, you can take it down, Brian. It's okay. It's just the point of thinking about it critically and specifically. What a title. This is not only Paul's title, do you understand? This is our title. All Christians to be ambassadors. Paul received a commission, an ambassador. An ambassador carries a message, not his own message, the message of the king. You don't speak for yourself. You're an ambassador. You're an envoy. What a beautiful message. You ever think of yourself this way? Living in the world as an ambassador, heralding the message of the king, not your own message, the king's message. The message of reconciling peace. God paid the price for sin. God is not at war with sinners. Sinners can now believe and be saved. I mean, we could talk about this forever. So many, th this is unfair. Sometimes I give Brian a hard time that I get the hard passages and he gets, you know, one of my, and that's not true. But um, today it's hard because every verse could be a sermon. I mean, this, this is just a great passage. What does it mean to be ambassador? Well, we're chosen. Christ chose Paul. Paul didn't represent himself. He represents Christ. So important. Ambassadors are held accountable. They represent their countries. They say what they're instructed to say. They know that one day they'll give an account of their work. And that's the message of the church today, is that we would share that message of reconciliation. God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. What a privilege. What a responsibility to view yourself that way. As an ambassador. As a citizen. As a privileged representative of heaven here on earth until God comes and takes us back. All believers are ambassadors. Whether you really realize it or not, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Let's make sure that our message and everything that we are doing is lasting. Well, not only are we ambassadors, and just quickly here, I'm sorry, I'm, I am running a little over, but we have a royal message Chapter 5, verse 21, this is some of the greatest theology in the New Testament to understand in the Gospel. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus was sinless. Verse 21. So that we might receive in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is, we discover here, the core difference between Christianity and every other world religion. You understand that we become acceptable in God's sight not 
by what we do. Not by what we bring, but what Christ does for us. In a wondrous exchange, God legally and financially imputes, it's a banking term, credits to us Christ's righteous record and credits to Christ our horrible credit report. (laughs) Our horrible record. God the billionaire takes our unpayable debt. We the beggar receive his bottomless fortune. As Brian alluded to in his uh, prayer, this is sometimes called the great exchange. Next slide, Brian. The, the timing was, uh, it was going to be so good. <laughs> his righteousness, our unrighteousness. This is theologically called the great exchange. Across a century, uh, very few have probed more deeply than Martin Luther into this. Last quote here. Martin Luther said, who can even begin to appreciate what this royal message means? Who can comprehend the riches of this glorious grace? Christ, the rich and divine bridegroom, marries this poor, wicked whore, redeems her from all of her evil, adorns her with all of his goodness. It, is, it now is impossible for her sins to destroy her, for they are laid on Christ and swallowed up by him. She has her righteousness in Christ, her husband, which she can now boast as her very own. Through our marriage, all that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. The death of Jesus changes our perspective forever. It changes how we see our own lives. It changes who we serve. It changes our attitude towards the people around us. It changes our view of Christ and our relationship with God. The resurrection of Jesus must change our understanding of the times we live in as well. In Christ, we can no longer think about anything the same old way anymore. We are too comfortable in this world. And we need to realize we are pilgrims. And I'm the first one who needs to think about it differently. What washes over us as we read this passage? What, what would I take away from it? is this flood of God's grace available to sinners even though they are in rebellion of all that they deserve. And the truth is, if we go back to the idea of motives, I was born not even wanting to do what's right. God had to help me. We love him because he first loved us. God took it upon himself to reconcile ourselves to him. He sent his own son. And we have this happy privilege to pass on the word of reconciliation to those around us. The love of Christ for you should be the thing that is so shaping your life that it controls, compels, constrains you. You are loved more deeply than anyone has ever loved, been loved, because someone laid down their life for you.